admire this man I'm going to introduce right now. Uh, the books that he, that he has written have illuminated so much, so many things for me. Um, and I know that many of you have read his uh, many books, many works. And by the way, after his talk, you can go back to our fellowship hall where Max is from the International Bookstore and you can buy all, any or all of his books and I would urge you to do that. Go back, just kind of talk. Speaking of that, tomorrow from 2 o'clock to 4 o'clock, we are having a reception for Dr. Parenti uh, in Huntington Beach. We have some flyers in the back. Um, this is going to be a conversation. Just a time just to get to know him more, uh, to have talk. You'll get to meet Peter Matthews, get to talk to him a lot. It's going to be a very special time. It's $30 a, per per a person or, or $50 a couple. That money goes in to helping this campaign. Don't complain about the money. We need the money to get this person in. We've got to buy things, information to get out to people. We're not going to have great huge developers, people from the right coming and giving us lots of money. Not like Pat Buchanan who's got millions of dollars in a war chest. It's not going to happen for us, you know? It isn't going to happen for us. So we, those people, I know you're struggling. We're all struggling. Let's all pitch in. If you want and if you can, tomorrow from 2 to 4 p.m. we have a flyer. Where are you, Kathy? Right here. Kathy has flyers and directions to get to the house. We'll have refreshments. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be a very informal kind of conversation. You'll have a lot of time just to sit, ask all the questions you want to Dr. Parenti, which you will not have that opportunity tonight or any other time, perhaps. But then you will get to know him. You can buy the books. He'll autograph them for you there. And it's a, uh, I think it'd be a very good uh, and great time for you, a good experience for you. Well, now, with no other, uh, no other announcements, I'd like to introduce you to a person that uh, has meant a lot to many of us, and his works really resound in our thinking, Michael Parenti. Thank you. It's, uh, it's very nice to be here. Um, and my thanks to you for braving the threat of storm, which I know is a terrifying thing for Californians. In fact, this one was a serious storm, uh, unlike the usual drizzles that, that sometimes frighten people away. I was thinking, I was reading, um, I was reading just the uh, other day, George Clemenceau, Prime Minister of France, 100 years ago. He said, the United States is a unique country in that it's the only country in history that, uh, that passed through from barbarism to degeneracy without ever having experienced that stage called civilization. And um, I thought about it and I said, well, that's kind of unfair because uh, I see a lot of civilization in our country. I see good, good representation of it right here. And uh, in fact, I've been, I've been lecturing all up, all up the coast of California this past week and a half and ran into lots of civilization. I define civilization as people who are concerned, people who are doing things, people like Peter and, 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 and the people he was making an appeal to. And there's quite a few. Of course, you, you also have your share of barbarism and degeneracy, barbarians and degenerates in California. But you have the good sense of of isolating them in high, visible, high visibility places, uh, and that is by voting them into public office, you know. 
But we want to we want now to change that and we want to we want to vote for someone who is someone who is a purveyor of history, someone like like Peter. The, the whole country, it's not California in particular, the whole country seems to have this bad habit of 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 putting them in, in public office, which brings me to my present subject. That is what they've done in the last uh, 13 years, going on 14 now. Um, and that is, no, I, wait a minute. I guess I'm, I'm no, eight, go, uh, 11 years going on 12. It feels like 14. Uh, 11 years going on 12 years. Um, and that is voodoo economics. The phrase voodoo economics was first used publicly by, by George Bush. And he used it in the 1980 presidential primary campaign against Ronald Reagan. It was a critique of supply-side ideology. And then when Reagan put him on the ticket as vice president, he never used it again. And when he became president, he never used the term again. He just continued the practice of it. And supply-side ideology says, in effect, that the private sector is the source of immense productivity and wealth and well-being. And if things aren't going well, it's because government has been interfering in the magic performance of the private sector. And if the private sector could be freed from the restraints of government intrusions, meddlings, and regulations, it would then be able to perform with utmost vigor. If people knew they could really make a profit, they go out and invest. The more they invest, the more jobs they create. The more jobs they create, the wider would your tax base be. So you could tax people less, the government would still get sufficient revenues to take care of the few things it needs to take care of left, you know, a few things left like CIA, FBI, and armaments. And, uh, and then all the rest of the stuff would be done by the private economy. That's the theory. The practice has been something else. The practice is really a double standard, that in reality, the right-wing conservatives who have been ruining this country for the last 12 years are not against the use of government. It's an iron, it's an iron rule of these things that there always be something under the speaker's feet to distract him. It's just something that they guys work out in some way. Um, I think they learn it in, in camera school or whatever. Okay. Um, in actuality, the Reagan and Bush administrations have been for weak government, small government in some areas, but for very powerful state power in other areas. When it comes to silly, wasteful, foolish things like feeding undernourished children, school lunch programs, school scholarships, government is not needed. They're all for privatizing and leaving it. Uh, but when it comes to some other kinds of things, like um, like intervening military and other militarily in other countries, engaging in invasions and covert actions to to create impoverished client states, to which we can then export our jobs into cheap labor markets so that the multinationals can make larger profits, uh, restricting domestic dissent. Uh, treating us like criminals because we want to do solidarity work with, with people who are struggling for freedom in other countries, treating us like criminals because we want to protect the environment, framing terms like eco-terrorists, right, people who want to stop the chainsawing of, of uh, redwood forests and things of that sort. Um, 
They, they even want government intruding into the most intimate areas of our lives. For instance, government should come in and legislate compulsory pregnancy to women. It's a rather incredible thing. The most personal moral choices, everything from abortion to censorship of books and photo exhibits to phone tapping of dissidents. I always like to know why my phone is being tapped in Washington. Why when I go on a demonstration at Lafayette Park, these guys always come up and take a picture of me. You know, just a couple of feet away. Take, I mean, they know what I look like anyway. <laughs> I remember one day this guy took a picture of me, and then uh, walking around the second time, he came right up and took another one, and I went for him. I just wanted to talk to him and say, what are you doing taking a picture? And he split out. And then from a distance, he took another picture. A, 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 a companion of mine said, there he is over there again. With the, um, what I learned to do with those guys, if you want to learn, by the way, you go on, if you go on a uh, demonstration and you feel the police are taking pictures, is you should bring a camera and take pictures of them. They don't like that at all. They, they, they walk away. <laughs> We've got the yuppie vote here. Yeah. <laughs> um, the conservative commitment the conservative uh, uh, commitment, the keystone to individual rights, is really historically developed since the 19th century has been the enjoyment of market rights, the enjoyment of property rights, especially the right to profit off other people's labor and the right to enjoy the privileges of a favored class. I wrote in, uh, I wrote in my book, uh, Democracy for the Few, that the secret to getting rich is not to work hard, but to have other people work hard for you. As Peter pointed out, you make money off the labor of others. And I, I remember I got a letter from a student. That book has been used in hundreds of college courses around the country. And this kid wrote, I forget from what school it was now, but he said, uh, oh dear Mr. Prendy, we're using your book, Democracy for the Few, in our course, and on page such and such, you say, just what I just said, the secret to getting rich is to work hard, uh, and not to work hard, but to have others work hard for you. Um, he said, I think that's a great idea, and uh, that's what I want to do. I want to get other people to work hard for me, and could you give me any advice? And there's a snickering, <laughs> a snickering, and saying, do you know where there are really cheap labor markets where I could really uh, pay people very low subsistence wages so I could get as rich as possible, as fast as possible? And I could sort of see him snickering with his fraternity buddies as he wrote this letter, sent it to me. Um, and I've always believed that we should be, as Peter does so well, patiently, courteously try to explain to people and all that. But uh, you see, all things should be practiced in moderation, including moderation itself. And I decided that this time I wasn't going to deal with that. So I took his letter. He was Ted somebody. And I just wrote on the bottom of it. I said, Dear Teddy, some asshole sent me this letter and signed your name to it. And I <laughs> You don't always have to be a teacher, you know, you don't always have to uplift people. Sometimes you can give them one right back. <laughs> well, so by this right-wing view, government is a danger when it offers school lunch programs, not when it imposes school prayers. It's a danger when it expands its conservation programs, not when it expands its police powers and military might. When it tries to redistribute income downward, not when it redistributes it upward. The supply sires 
supply-siders also denounce liberals. Give you gaseated water to drink when you're giving a lecture. <clears throat> for their tax, tax, spend, spend policy. Um, but in fact, the Reagan-Bush administrations have done something like that. They have done borrow, borrow, spend, spend policy. They are among the wildest deficit spenders in the history of America. The two biggest deficit spenders, administration deficit spenders, as of 1970s were Richard Nixon's administration and Gerald Ford's. They produce record peacetime deficits. The Reagan administration's deficits threatened to run, threatened to run off the charts. He piled up so many deficits that by, with eight, after eight years in, in office, he had tripled the national debt. When he came in, it was $900 billion. When he left, it was $2.7 trillion. George Bush, his deficits are so huge that they're difficult to hide, even with the most imaginative bookkeeping techniques, which he just alluded to. You see the other week, we said, we're gonna, we, we, our deficit won't be that bad because we have new accounting methods we're using. <laughs> I mean, it's one thing when they use smoke and mirrors. It's another thing when they reassure you that they're using smoke and mirrors, you know? I mean, it's a rather amazing thing. And by the way, the proposed, the proposed budgets of the Reagan and Bush administrations were generally higher than what Congress finally put through. So you can't blame the wild spending liberal Congress as being the source of all these deficits. It's what they themselves, look at, look at, look at Bush's budget that just proposed last week, $1.5 trillion. The last budget was $1.2 trillion. So he's gone up uh, $300 billion. Am I right? Yeah, 300 billion. He's gone up 300 billion uh, in the budget, or about um, what is that? Maybe 22 percent or so, and a jump. And when you—that's Bush spending, you see. And the way they do it is by borrowing from the people they should be taxing. Well, I'll talk about that in a minute. At the same time, those who think their taxes are all going to welfare chiselers, let me point out that the aid to families with dependent children, which is the welfare program, uh, uh, was last year $10 billion, which was less than 1% of a $1.2 trillion budget. But there's welfare plenty, and there's welfare for the rich, mostly. Over the years, the Reagan and Bush administration have sold or leased to private corporate interests at fees that were from 1% to 10% of their true market value. So 90 to 99% giving away free of our public domain. At 1% to 10% of the true market value, they have sold or leased billions of dollars worth of coal and oil reserves, grazing and timber lands, and mineral reserves. In any given year, the federal government hands out more than $100 billion in price supports, loan guarantees for big businesses, payments in kind, research and development, export subsidies, subsidized insurance rates, promotion and marketing services, irrigation and reclamation programs, and new plants and equipment. In recent times, the government has provided hundreds of billions of dollars to bail out giant corporations like Chrysler, Lockheed, Continental Illinois, and a trillion dollars to bail out uh, the savings loan. It'll come to at least a trillion dollars. If that doesn't, you see, if Max Gundy goes out of business, in little international book publishers, nobody bails him out. You've got to really be big. You've got to steal big, you've got to operate big, and then you get paid off big. 
So what you have, you see, in these instances is socialism in the service of capitalism. We're always told how much better the private market does things, how much more efficient, how more profitable. What they o overlook is that the diseconomies of the private market are the things that are hoisted on to the public. When the investors in Appalachia went in there and made hundreds of millions of dollars, Appalachia was not a poor region, it was a rich region. You don't go into poor places to make money. You go into rich places. And Appalachia had coal in it. And you ask the Morgans and the Mellons, and especially the Rockefellers about Appalachia, and they, if they had an honest moment, would tell you, yes, we made millions, our fortunes were made in Appalachia. Only the people in Appalachia are poor. And in the early 1960s, when they discovered that Appalachia was a desperately impoverished area, they called it the shame of the nation. You see, the diseconomy, now suddenly they talk socialism. The public, what is the public going to do about poor Appalachia? And I said, what should the public be doing? I didn't impoverish anybody in Appalachia. I know who was down there. I went down there, as a matter of fact. Why, then that's it. Ecology and environment is another thing. They use our environment like a septic tank and pour raw, raw industrial effusions into our rivers and our air and everything else. And then you hear CEOs get up and say, well, if the public wants to clean up the pollution, they're going to have to pay for it because we're not big enough to clean it up. They're big enough to do it. They're not big enough to clean it up. But it's getting very, they get very socialistic when it comes to the non-profitable costs of their endeavors of their private enterprise. It's not something we did. They created those cars that pollute. Even right down to newspapers, you know this recycling of newspapers. In Washington, D.C., there's talk about, does the city have the re means, can we get re recycling people, all volunteering, all, to get these newspapers. The Washington Post creates those newspapers. The Washington Post sells them. The Washington Post makes hundreds of millions of dollars on its advertising. The big advertisers put their ads in those newspapers. All that goes out to us, but they have no responsibility as far as collecting it. Then it becomes socialist. Once the profit's been made on it and the costs are out there to the public, then we have to uh, dig deeper into our pockets. So the public pays in a lot of different ways, you know. They pay first as taxpayers who provide all those subsidies and supports, then as consumers who buy the high-priced commodities and services, and then again as taxpayers who have to pay for the diseconomies of this immensely, magnificently productive system. The public takes the risks, absorbs the costs, while private enterprise skims the cream and gets the benefits. In any one year, government permits billions in public monies to remain on deposit in banks without collecting interest if they're pet banks. It tolerates overcharging by firms with whom it does business. It awards highly favorable contracts to large companies along with long-term credits. And it lowers tax assessments amounting to billions of dollars yearly. Through non-enforcement, it has uh, undermined most of our anti-tax laws. <clears throat> Whole new technologies are developed at public expense, not only at the end of productivity, but even at the beginning, the development, the birth of it. Again, socialism comes in. Nuclear energy, electronics, synthetics, space communications, mineral exploration, computer systems, all developed at public expense by the taxpayers and then handed over to private business for private gain. 
So this myth of a self-reliant, free market, trickle-down economy is just that, a myth. In almost every case, it's not trickle-down, it's siphon it up, you see? It's not a redistribution, share the wealth, you got so much, give me a little piece. It's, it's reusing, properly using, and I think that's what Peter was getting at, is properly using our wealth that we create through our endeavor. <clears throat> In the area of taxes, it's the same kind of thing. Taxes, is used, or taxes are used to redistribute wealth in an upward direction, taking your hard-earned money away from you to subsidize the rich and powerful. Um, taking into account all local, state, federal taxes, including Social Security, we find that lower-income and middle-income people pay a higher percentage of their earnings than do those in the very highest bracket while generally getting less for what they pay. Don't take my word for it. Listen to what the establishment Washington Post has to say. Quote, taxes on the working poor have skyrocketed. This was in 1985. Skyrocketed while taxes on the well-to-do and on profitable corporations have declined dramatically. That's rather sensational news. I mean, isn't that rather extraordinary datum? Well, it was right there sensationalistically blazoned in the Washington Post on page 23, bottom column, in the 34th paragraph of a long story on public policy. You see, it's not true, it's not really not true that the media are sensationalistic. I mean, they're sensationalistic about, you know, the sex scandal stuff, but there are all sorts of very sensational things that, uh, that they never really deal with. Their job is not to really focus emphasize, bring them vividly to you, the job is to mute them, gray them, put them in little little places around. You've got to go digging around to get this, this data sometimes, if you're lucky. In fact, in my book, Inventing Reality, I call that the graying of reality, that they really gray and mute it. <clears throat> Don't take my word for it again about taxes. Listen to what the Wall Street Journal has to say. The Wall Street Journal, who's commitment to capitalism has never been, uh, you know, never been questioned, n never has to be questioned. Quote, one of the ironies of the federal tax system is its bias against the poor. That's not an irony. It isn't just some curious thing of fate that happened. That's a conscious policy that the lobbyists in the White House pursued over those years. One of the great victories of Reaganomics was the abolition of the progressive income tax. When Reagan came into office, the top bracket was 70%. That doesn't mean 70% of all your income. It means your, your, the taxes were graduated. So the multimillionaire paid on the first $20,000 the same that you pay on your first $20,000. And 40 the same. And, 50, and, and, then it's, and then it was 70% of anything, I think, over half a million or something like that. So they make, they make it's not confiscatory as it would seem. By the time Reagan left office, the 70% income bracket had been reduced to 28%, the same rate as an ordinary worker, a flat tax. Thus, the factory worker who makes $25,000 a year pays the same tax rate as the CEO who makes $2,500,000 a year. They both pay the same rate. And in fact, it's not a flat tax because the CEO has all sorts of deductions, personal deductions, everything else that he still has, which the factory worker doesn't have. 
<clears throat> so in fact, it's disproportionately higher for, it's a, it's a really disguised regressive tax. Other regressive taxes were increased, user fees, excise taxes, and social security taxes. A tremendous jump. Now that's an interesting phenomenon. When Reagan first came in, he went after social security with tooth and nail. He hated it, like all right-wingers did. Here was something that the employer had to put in money to, it matched the employees, and, um, <clears throat> and, it would, uh, and it would go uh, into some fun and it goes to these ordinary people. Why don't they just take care of themselves and save their money or rely on their children and, and, and the way they should? And that's that. Um, after a while, though, you notice conservatives haven't attacked Social Security in years now, in years, because they discovered that the Social Security fund was a surplus federal fund. It was the only one that was a surplus, and then they could dip into that fund and use that in the general regular budget. And that's what they do. It became a means of reducing the deficit. So here they had a highly regressive tax that people were willing to pay. In fact, among low-income working families, most of them pay more tax money into Social Security than they do in their regular federal income tax. But they're willing to do it because they think that money is going to be in a fund that's waiting for them when they're 65. In fact, that money is going to pay for FBI agents and missiles and White House limousines and things like that and, and other things. So it's a highly regressive tax system. It's been argued that the wealthy, if the wealthy were more heavily taxed, it would make no appreciable difference in federal revenues because there's so few of them. I never understood the justice of that point of view. Let us first, it's like, you know, saying, if you caught all the serial murderers, it wouldn't matter because there's so few of them that it doesn't make a dent in our population anyway. <laughs> um, and by the way, as in any case, it's not really true. It's not true. In fact, if, if, <clears throat> if rich individuals and corporations were paying taxes at the 1979 rate, the year before Ronald Reagan came into office, there would be no yearly budget deficit. That is, it's about a 300 to 400 billion dollar transfer of tax burden from the very rich down to the middle class and lower income people. You pay more and more. You look, you look, if you make any kind of decent income, if you're much over twenty, thirty thousand dollars you look at your tax, it's probably your biggest item. I mean, there isn't that much more that you pay. I mean, it's, 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 it's kind of, well, housing probably, your house if you've got a, if you straddle with a big mortgage. But it's a huge chunk of money if you really sit down and calculate what has gone out on it. And then if you count your sales taxes and your state taxes and everything else, you are paying an enormous sum of money uh, um, the generous tax breaks went to the rich. Now, the, the purpose of that, it was supposed to spur investment. If the rich have more money, they will invest it. And there were cuts on entitlements and human services to the poor and needy. If the poor have less money, they will work harder, you see. So to make the rich work harder, you've got to give them money. To make the poor work harder, you've got to take money away from them. That's the Reagan-Bush uh, mentality. And Bush is still pushing that. What is the one issue this guy, what is the one domestic issue this guy has been fighting for since day one he came into office? What is the one issue? Is it education? Is it rebuilding the infrastructure? Is it housing? Is it environment? No. It's capital gains tax for the top 2% of the people. That's what he has been fighting for. And the assumption is that when you get, make those cuts, they will have all that money to invest. In fact, that doesn't happen. 
because companies and others do not invest. You can give them write-offs on their machinery. You can give them special appreciation allowances. You give them all these things, and they don't invest anymore. If I'm making refrigerators, and you're not buying the refrigerators. I don't just go out and go build another refrigerator factory or hire more people, take this extra money I got from the taxes and hire more people to make more refrigerators, to glut my market even more, to decrease my per unit profit even more. So what you do with the money is you put it in the stock market, you put it in mergers, you put it in quick takeovers, you invest it in a, a private airplane, a third home, um, real estate, whatever else, gold certificates, you name it. And that's where the money's been going. And they do very well at it. Recessions, by the way, aren't such a bad thing if you're rich. Not bad at all, being in a recession. Labor is cheaper. Got five different people lining up for that job you got there, you know. You got lots of, lots of labor, the guys that carry your golf clubs, that clean your country clubs, and, um, women to wait on the banquets, such as special banquets you have, and all those things. You plenty of cheap labor. You, 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 don't live, you don't live bad if you got money in a recession. In fact, you live quite well. I want to make that point because you, we hear how we're all in this boat together. You hear that from the White House. You say, we're all in this boat together. Well, in fact, some of us are in this present recession are not in a boat. They're in the water where the waves are coming right up to here and they're treading water and others of us are in very leaky little skiffs and then others of us are weathering it through in tax-deductible yachts, as you know, or big power boats off Kennebunkport. Okay. <laughs> Another source of capital accumulation, investment, and profit in these supply-side years has been the Pentagon and the military. That is, in eight years in office, George Bush spent $2.5 on the military. In four years in office, George, uh, President Bush, did I say George Bush? I'm sorry. In eight years in office, Reagan spent $2.5 on the military. That's more than was expended on defense in all the years since World War II, including the Korean War, uh, Vietnam War, everything else. Um, in four years in office, Bush has budgeted $1.2 trillion. Or, or maybe it's a little more than that. I think it's a little more for the military. <clears throat> so that's an enormous sum of money. And military spending is a wonderful kind of spending for private corporations. It's not like other human services. Could you shut that door back there? Thanks. Um, it's not like other human services where when, when, the, when the public sector expands and you can demonstrate that you could run railroads without a profit system and you can create jobs for public works without a profit system and you can perform human services and build hospitals and you don't need somebody making a board on the hospital, making a large sum of money on it, you could have a publicly owned hospital. When you demonstrate those kind of things, that's when business gets very unhappy and uneasy because you are demonstrating that the public sector, the not-for-profit public sector can perform these services and do it, deliver the mail, whatever else, have a health system, whatever. Um, but military contracts aren't like that. That's a form of government spending. A military contract to a private business is like any other contract. You come in, you want to buy, you want to make tanks or planes, it's just like you want to make buses or cars. In fact, it's better. Because, you know, you make cars, the auto manufacturer makes cars, and he's got to worry about selling them. But when Chrysler got that order for the M1 tank, that was billions of dollars coming in 
And he didn't, they didn't have to worry. Lee Iacocca, they talk about what a genius he was to pick up Chrysler and turn it around and put it back in the black, you know? I, I can see that genius you give me those government contracts, you know? <laughs> um, he wasn't a genius. We were the ones. We were the genius who rescued Chrysler. Commotion for creation and rattles for revival. It's a right, rat, rat. The secret of praying is praying in secret. People who are not praying are praying. They say regulation and abomination, but you know they're only thinking of themselves. Free the unseen hand to pollute the land and the healthy effect upon our health. They really don't care about the water in the air. You know, they really don't care about the water in the air. I said they really don't care about the water in the air, just as long as they can milk. Um, so you have a guaranteed contracted market. You have guaranteed cost overruns. You can jack up your prices and all that and they just come along and, and, and pay you for it. You have, um, you have a whole new area of investment that doesn't compete with your civ uh, civilian market investment. <clears throat> you have a limitless growth area. I mean, how much defense is enough defense? And no sooner does one weapon system come in than it's obsolete and you can develop some other one and, and, and the like. This may explain why, despite the fact that, it's one of the reasons, despite the fact that the big red menace that supposedly was inexorably power-hungrily, totalitarianly wanting to expand, to grab power, to crush and imprison and, 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 um, and enslave the world, uh, disappeared like a bud. The big, the big red bear disappeared like a little teddy bear suddenly because 100,000 people went out on the streets and began demonstrating. Despite all that happening, um, we still have a global military machine, which Bush will cut not more than 20% over a five-year period. And even those cuts are kind of tricky and funny. He's even saying things like, we're going to cut military spending, but it might cost more to cut. <laughs> That's a serious thing. He said that. The costs of dismantling the bases or the this or the that or, or whatever. <clears throat> 
The end result is that the military-industrial sector is probably the highest profit sector. Now, there are those who say that, um, that defense spending creates jobs. The last three secretaries of defense have made that argument. Defense spending creates jobs. I mean, so does pornography and prostitution create jobs. But the question is, what is the social value of that? And in fact, defense spending is so capital intensive that it creates fewer jobs than any other form of public spending except the space program. <clears throat> to give you a better idea of how much we spend on defense, and this may explain how we are impoverishing ourselves and how, we are, how this has a drag and a regressive effect on our economy and may explain something about the present recession and why it isn't that easy to get out of it why we're not able to spend our way out of that recession as we have in the past by just lowering interest rates and giving a few tax cuts and all that sort of thing. What the people of Cleveland have to spend on armaments in two weeks, that is, what they, that portion of their federal income tax that goes to the Pentagon in two weeks would be enough to wipe out the financial crisis that the city of Cleveland faces. And that's true, by the way, of a number of, of other... Um, a number of states and municipalities. If they could get back those billions that their taxpayers pay to the government to feed the Pentagon, if you could take that 300 billion a year and give that to the states and municipalities around the country, portion that out, you would wipe out, I mean, you know, I mean, some, most cities are facing tax crises that are in the hundreds of millions of dollars, I'm not tax crises, debt crises that are in hundreds of millions, deficits and all something. But that could be wiped out in a, in a few years, I would think. Um, <clears throat> and by the way, all of this also translates to us, you know, in another way. That is the, um, the crisis we're facing in state and local governments right now the uh, thing that Peter mentioned about the raising of tuitions, the cutbacks in services and all that. Why is that happening? Why is that happening? One of the great geniuses of the American media is they never ask or never say why. One of the great geniuses of many of the muckraking books, many of even our social critics, they complain, they denounce, they say this is awful, but we've got to ask, why is that happening? Why in such a rich country are the state and municipalities so cutting back like this. Well, the states and municipalities are in a triple squeeze, and it is one of the direct fruitions of voodoo economics, where President Reagan and Bush have turned around to them and said, we are going to revitalize federalism. How are we going to do it? We're, gonna not, we're not going to make you so dependent on the federal government anymore, so you can stand on your own feet and vitally develop yourself. Great. How are we going to do that? we're going to cut federal subsidies to you, 40 to 60%. What else are we going to do? We're going to give you that squeeze number one. Squeeze number two is we're going to dump these federal programs onto you. And Governor Florio of New Jersey was right when he said, we'll take the programs back, would, would you give us some of the money back so we could fund these programs? And the third squeeze on state and local governments is, of course, with the general recession, their own revenues, their own revenues have shrunk and, and so, They've got this triple squeeze and they're cutting back. And the more they cut back and the more people they lay off, the more of a recessive effect that has on the economy. <clears throat> now all this deficit spending, 
all this paying this to the military and all that has led to an enormous national debt. With George Bush, I told you when uh, Reagan tripled the national debt. When he came into office, it was 900 billion. When he left, it was 2.7 trillion. Uh, George Bush in four years is jacking up that national debt. If we take this budget that he just proposed and add that on, it will be $4 trillion. So the national debt will be the highest in the world. Not only the highest in the world, bigger than the rest of the world. While we always talk about third world debts and these nations that have these debts, in fact, the national debt of the United States is bigger than all the third world countries. The national debt is the money that the government borrows from rich individuals, financial institutions, banks, organizations in this country and in Japan, Germany, England, France, and other countries. Um, <clears throat> and as the debt grows so enormously in size, it also grows at an increasing rate to the point where the, the government is now paying, spending an increasing portion of the money it borrows just to pay the interest on the money it has already borrowed. So the debt is beginning to assume, assume a structural force of its own. It is growing. The interest paid on the national debt has been growing twice as fast as the budget itself. That's a pretty staggering thing. Right now, something like 50 cents of every federal dollar you pay in, you get absolutely nothing for. I mean, it doesn't even go to pay for FBI agents. Or it goes to the military, and it goes to the interest on the national debt. That's if you count Social Security and all that. If you count the discretionary budget, it's more like 80 cents of every federal dollar you pay. <clears throat> that debt, by the way, belongs to you. Karl Marx made that point. The only part of the so-called national wealth that actually enters in the, into the collective possession of modern peoples is their national debt. Karl Marx wrote that 150 years ago in volume one of Capital, and we know he's irrelevant and obsolete and it doesn't mean anything. That's what he said, and it's right. They could take away your timberlands and your mineral reserves, they take away the airwaves, all of that's part of the public domain. That's the property of the people of the United States. Give those airwaves, license them out to the networks and all that. But the one thing they'll let you keep is the national debt, and you will be paying it, and your children will be paying it, your children's children. It's a debt that can never really be paid in its immensity. <clears throat> Supply-siders also preach that if we had pure capitalism, if we really had a free market, you would see how capitalism could work. It's the image of Prometheus bound, you know. If only you could untrammel him and he would show you his strengths and his wonders and everything he could do for, for all of you. Um, in fact, you know, we had something close to pure capitalism. I remember debating a businessman on this, and he kept talking about the free market, this, that, we didn't govern that. I said, you're describing something, and if only we could. I said, why must you talk about it as a hypothetical future that has never been given a chance? I said, we did that already. It's called 1890. In 1890, you had a very close approximation to a free market. And what did we have? We had contaminated foods and typhoid epidemics, cholera epidemics. The drinking water in Philadelphia was so contaminated they had massive typhoid epidemics. We had 11-year-old kids working 14 hours a day in factories, free market, while grown men were unemployed. 
young underage girls exploited in factories, used in every way, misused in every way, in the free market. No government regulations, no bothersome feminists to come along and fill our heads with silly imaginary problems. We had an environment that was systematically pillaged and raped. Um, we had unrestrained monopolies and trusts. We had mass poverty, unemployment. We had no pension programs, unsafe working conditions, a rate of accident and injury that was even higher than it is today. And we had very, very high profits. So you're right, capitalism was working at its best. And that is when capitalism works at its best, not for the people, but for the capitalists. You see, the whole essence of that system is that it has a performance and a goal that is for the people who own the system, not for the people who inhabit the country. And in that sense, it was a better system. And when that guy sits there and says, it was better, it'd be better if we had this, better if we had, he's talking from his class perspective. He honestly believes that would be better. And it would be so much better for him, he can't but help believe that it would be better for everyone else. You, people always pose that. Well, do you think they really honestly think that as an ideology that it would be for the country or it's their selfish class interest? As if this is either or. I always get a question, some variation of a question like that. That's not either or. Those are both the same thing. The fact that it so well serves their class interest makes it all the more compelling as a belief that it's good for everyone and it's the right thing and it's the best thing. <clears throat> Well, <clears throat> those who suffer the most from all this are the poor, people of color, blue collar, and low to middle level white collar and service workers. That's just about everybody. That's quite a, quite a chunk of people. <laughs> the guys on top, as I said, do, don't, do that, don't do that badly. I mean, it's true, Ford just issued. I mean, the auto companies are having trouble, just a big loss now, a billion dollars lost and all this sort of thing. Always comes up around this time of year, just before tax time. I'll tell you what big losses they've had. But in 1991, the cash flow profits for big corporations were still coming in fairly strong with some troubled industries. Um, uh, big retail having problem like Macy's, Bloomingdale's, Ames declared bankruptcy. The airliners, freed from the uh, restraints and regulations of the federal government, are going bankrupt now. They're eating each other up. Um, but but corporations are managing. It's not all that bad. They have with cost cutting, with speed ups, with layoffs, with benefit cuts, with government subsidies and new tax breaks. Profit margins are holding up in most industries. Um, dividend payments to stockholders in this last quarter, last year, what well, was it? Bad? Good? So-so? What were dividend payments? Anybody want to venture a guess? They were the highest in history. A record high in the last quarter. That is the amounts of dividends that corporations pay to their stockholders, profits to the stockholders. So it's not too bad for the people who own it all. But this has been the longest, deepest recession since the 1930s. The thing that it troubles him, see, when Bush says this recession, is, this recession isn't that serious and it's going to write itself out, he honestly believes that because things aren't that bad for his class. He doesn't really think it's all that bad. He has to start saying it now because he has the New Hampshire primary and his 1992 re-election. So then he'll say it. 
I mean, he'll say anything to save his little yelly ass, you know, and, and, get, and get reelected, of course. He'll say that, but it doesn't mean that he's really that concerned. He gets up and he says, I know I underestimated this. I mean, I see now that it's a real problem. The state of New Hampshire has lost, what, something like 40,000 jobs or 10% of its workforce in the last four or five months, last quarter. That's a staggering amount, isn't that? What's happening? And there are all sorts of people who are bitter, people who voted for George Bush, and they say, I don't know if he really cares about us. Well, welcome to reality. <laughs> but now, don't corporations do their share? They invest, they create new jobs. Don't go blaming them for everything, parenti. Well, I don't blame them for everything. I just blame them for their share. And what is about this image about corporations? Where would we be without the providential corporation that creates these jobs, gives us these jobs? I went and looked at this a little bit. I looked at how many jobs were created by the Fortune 500, the 500 biggest, richest companies in the U.S. Because I started getting suspicious, you know. Chrysler was cutting back. General Motors cut back 25,000 jobs four years ago and now announced another 72,000 jobs cut back. All sorts of other companies, Cargill, all these, all going overseas to invest elsewhere. And I'm saying, how many new, net new jobs have the Fortune 500 created? And I dug around and I found the statistics, gathered it all together. It was in Working Assets Money Fund, winter of 91, 92, page two. Number of US jobs added by Fortune 500 since 1980, none, zero. Zilch, zip. So there you are. You begin to understand. They're not in this business to create jobs for you, to build a better America. It is. They're in this business to squeeze out whatever surplus value they can from your labor. And if they could have 10 of you doing what they used to have 30 doing, then they are increasing their rate of expropriation on your labor. They are increasing their surplus value margin, you see. And that's what the thing is all about. And that, that's why the accumulation of their wealth and the propagation of your insecurity and poverty have a link to each other. And when I say insecurity and poverty, I don't think this is a poor audience. But it's amazing what passes for middle class in this country. And it's amazing how many people are really just one or two paychecks away from being homeless themselves. I'm talking about people with fairly good incomes. It's amazing how many people are just a, a few paychecks away from not being able to have health insurance anymore and, and a whole bunch of other things. And, and those people living on the margin are the ones are, that are tumbling down in this recession. That's why the media has suddenly gotten very concerned about it, sort of. <clears throat> We're witnessing a crisis in textbook Keynesianism. That is the whole essence of Keynesian, at least the textbook version which the government has used, is that when there's a recession, the government inserts these countervailing forces. You cut taxes, that creates more buying power. People have money they, more money they can spend. You lower the interest rate. The interest rate is the price of money. When you want to borrow money, that's what you pay to get the use of that capital. Lower that interest rate, people can borrow more money, they'll invest more, this will bring the economy up. And you increase government spending. Now, when you, cut, when you cut taxes and increase government spending, you get what's called deficit. Well, they've been doing that for years. They've been running a deficit. And what they're now discovering is that, contrary to textbook Keynesianism, that we are not able to spend our way out of the recession, partly because of the gargantuan national debt we have 
which absorbs and soaks up most of the deficit spending. <clears throat> inflation doesn't even slow down. You see, the whole idea was uh, at times of expansion, you have inflation, you can slow that down. Um, we still have had, over the last 12 years, the buying power of your money has shrunk. You can see how the media plays a role in all of this to reassure us about these things, to, to keep us away from reality. National Public Radio, April 17, 1989. A commentator, morning, morning edition, quote, if you take food, fuel, and housing out of the equation, inflation has really been quite moderate. <laughs> you take a few other items out, it disappears altogether. <laughs> But that's a really upbeat mode of analysis. I kind of like that way. It's really kind of positive, don't you think? How far could you apply that? If you don't count the last 12 years, none of us has really aged all that much since 1980. <laughs> if you don't count aerial and artillery attacks, there wasn't much destruction in Iraq. You can go on like that, you know? It's called Peter Panism. Thinking makes it so. Come fly away with me, Wendy. Just uh, think you can fly and we'll fly, you see. Don't be negative. William Crocker, president of First National Bank of San Francisco in 1930, when the year the economy sank into the Great Depression and millions of workers were thrown out of work in a matter of a few months whole thing just collapsing. He said that conditions this year compare favorably with those that existed before the crash. Amazing. Well, if you're a banker, it doesn't look all that bad. And then he said, people are in an increasing, uh, an unnecessarily negative frame of mind and have stopped buying things. And this has caused everything to tailspin. <laughs> Almost a uh, Almost 70 years later, to prove that he's learned nothing in that interim, George Bush says, the trouble is people aren't going out and buying things. And to prove to show you how to do it, because none of you have ever been to a store, I guess. But he went to J.C. Penney, remember? And he bought sweat socks. He says, this is how you do it. You buy sweat socks. And um, Barbara Bush bought some things, too. It turns out she didn't have any money. She had to borrow some money from the Secret Service guy. And Bush said, said, we'll pay her back. We'll pay him back as soon as we get home. Well, what, 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 from Crocker to Bush, what they're doing, of course, is reversing cause and effect. People, the recession didn't come because people suddenly decided to stop buying or buying less. It's the other way around. People are buying less because they're losing their jobs and there's a recession. I didn't really think I had to explain that to this audience, but you never know who might be watching this cable access. Maybe a White House economist might grasp the point. <laughs> a little light bulb will go on over his head, you know. <clears throat> Karl Marx, the irrelevant Karl Marx. Irrelevant, really doesn't apply. I mean, ash can of history and all that sort of thing. 150 years ago said, Depressions occur because workers are not paid enough to buy back the goods and services they produce. There's a theory we might want to consider. By the way, just last week, Bush had another shopping adventure. Did you read about that? At the National Grocers Association, he went to their convention, and they brought him to a model supermarket. And they brought him to the checkout counter, to the scanner, gave him some items, and he 
put them over the scanner and he saw the prices register up on the thing and he said, uh, wow, this is amazing. What is this? Is this a checkout? Yeah, what a perception, what a guy. Is this a check? And then later he spoke to the grocers and he said to them, you've got some darn interesting technology there. The American public's really going to like it. Yeah, when are we going to get those scanners in the supermarkets? It'd be great, huh? It, it, it meant a White House press secretary, Marlon Fitzwater, saw fit, it felt necessary to call a bunch of reporters in and say that he has seen George Bush in a grocery store. Uh, about a year or so ago, up in Maine. <laughs> uh, but Bush has never visited a supermarket. And by the way, I think that revealed something about the hidden class dimensions of our public policy. That is, our grocery bills are determined, the policies determined by, by people who themselves never go to supermarkets. Our health, our health policy is written out by people who never have to sit for two hours in a clinic or an hour in a doctor's office. Our transportation policy is made by people who never have to wait for a bus or look for a parking space. They've got helicopters and limos that, that uh, hurry them away. Our education system is, is, is uh, our education policy is made by people who send, never have to send their kids to public schools, send them to private schools. Our daycare systems, or lack of, determined by people who use private governesses and nannies, and then go off to Smith College, as Barbara Bush did, and, and lectured to the students there about not being so concerned about accomplishing in your careers, and, and understand that the real joy and satisfaction is, is, the, is the working and nurturing of children and bringing them up, which is a real joy and satisfaction, but it, 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 it ill-fits the lips of a woman who's had a small army of other women to do all her life maintenance tasks for her, and some men, too, to show for her around and all sort of thing. And, and hearing her talk like this, I kind of just went, oh. <laughs> could, could do it. Occupational safety laws are made by people who never have to work in a factory or mine. The Supreme Court has ruled that wildcat strikes are illegal, a violation of contract and in coal mines. But a wildcat strike is the worker's only defense against, against uh, uh, occupational hazards that could, that, could, that could be disastrous in a day. I mean, you, you're going down in a mine and you see the foreman un, unattach the alarm wire that that rings the alarm in case there's too much smoke buildup because he's got a production quota he's got to meet that day and he doesn't want to stop for smoke buildups. You stop and you go on wildcat strike. Well, the Supreme Court, none of whom have been near a factory in their lives or near a mine and wouldn't know one end of a mine from another, legislate and say, this, as long as there's a grievance procedure, grievance which could take a week, two weeks, a month, uh, this the wildcat actions uh, on-site actions are a violation of contract and the union must be fined. You see, that the policy is being made by people who don't experience the thing. The, the, you know, the Cultural Revolution was interesting in China. I mean, it was a disaster and wrong-headed in many ways. But they did have a couple of ideas. They had one idea which was that an engineer who designs a machine has to work it for, has to go to the factory and work with it, has to go out there and, and then when he sees where he put the lever and he has to bend over 20, you know, 20 times every 10 minutes, he'll understand there are flaws in the design. And we ought to have these people do the same. We ought to 
say to them, every, every guy in the health committee say, okay, this year you've got to go through the public health system and go sit in the clinic and, get, and, and, and take your chances there, etc. Well, <clears throat> is it that you're saying then, is it that you're saying then that you, um, you have a magic wand, you could change everything, what would you do? What, I mean, what would you do? I mean, I don't want things to be this way either, but what would, you, what would you want us to do? We used to hear that during the Vietnam War. I don't want the war, but how would you end it? Well, we say, well, you end it, you take these guys, you put them on a boat, and you send them home. That's how we know. Can't, we can't just leave. Oh, yes, that's very revealing. In other words, you want to reach certain goals, but as long as you don't have to do certain things to get to those goals. You would like to come out of the recession, but not if it means a more just redistribution of income, not if it means strengthening labor, not if it means uh, spending in other ways, you know, public sector for the environment, these things, all that. then you're not gonna do it. <clears throat> if it constricts the interests of Mr. Bush's class, if it means progressive income taxes on his class, if it means those kind of things, then he certainly isn't going to do it. But there's no mystery about what could be done if you had the will to do it. There's no mystery. Peter Matthews just alluded to a number of those things. The end of the Cold War, the military budget should be cut. I would say by two-thirds you could cut it. I mean, you can't cut it completely politically. That's impossible. People say, oh, we'll be defenseless. What if the Canadians want to invade us, you know? Uh, <clears throat> But you can make an enormous cut. You can stop intervening and, and invading and, and destroying other countries like Grenada and Panama and Iraq and supporting mercenary armies in so many other countries like Indonesia and Zaire and uh, Mozambique and Angola and uh, Guatemala and El Salvador, murderous murder machines in many instances. You can stop doing all of that. What gives the United States the right to go in and dictate to these countries what form, what practices they could have? Go in there and bomb them. What was so terrible, what was so venal about their social arrangements that you can then go in and destroy their entire society and kill so many large numbers of people and, and, and destroy everything they built? Um, that, that's the kind of a thing we can do. We can eliminate the billions of dollars in foreign aid to corrupt autocracies around the world. Most of that money goes to, to, uh, to military establishments that aren't there to protect them from other countries, but are there to protect them from their own peoples most of the third world aid, with the exception of what goes to the Middle East, which is about half of the military budget goes to just two countries, Israel, I mean military, uh, uh, foreign aid budget, goes to Israel and Egypt. It's even a formula. You give money to Egypt, you have to give some to Israel. You give it to Israel, Israel you have to give it to Egypt so they can keep them in balance, and that's going to be secure. I got an idea for this. Don't give any money to either of them, and they can just all de-escalate on those, um, on those, uh, <clears throat> frontiers. Eliminate the billion dollar welfare handouts to rich corporations and rich, rich agribusiness at home and abroad. Let them try living up to their free market rhetoric. Abolish the CIA's covert action and death squad programs. End the U.S. sponsored war against the poor of the world. Stop attacking and destabilizing those governments, as I said a minute ago. Start enforcing the antitrust laws to reverse the trend toward concentrated monopolistic and unproductive economic power.
Reintroduce the progressive income tax for rich individuals and corporations without the many loopholes and deductions that still exist. Reintroduce the inheritance tax for the rich, which has been practically abolished during the Reagan years. Eliminate the manned space program, a $30 billion boondoggle that people have lost interest in, that does nothing but destroy the atmosphere. What do we need it for? except to build satellites that help spy on other countries, whatever else. Eliminate Star Wars, the SDI program. Doesn't work. Wh whose missiles are we defending ourselves against? Boris Yeltsin wants to join NATO. I mean, he's a right-wing, right free-market, capitalist, anti-communist, Boris Yeltsin is, on the pay of the Heritage Foundation. What the hell do you have to guard against his? We'll, we'll work together on Star Wars, he says. Even Dan Quayle said that Star Wars probably doesn't work and quail, <laughs> which makes me think it does work. <laughs> right, let's pass over that one. Let's move on. Um, we'll skip that. Develop a, a um, national health program that's rational. Engage in a concerted effort at conservation and ecological restoration, including a massive cleanup of land, air, water. Engage in a rational transportation system. Peter mentioned a magnetic rail system. The technology for magnetic rail systems is already there. Not the technology, but they're being used in Japan. It's a monorail. It comes around, and it doesn't ever actually sit on the rail, and it moves with magnetic force. They've, they've transported something like 70 billion passengers without a single injury or death in years, and they move at phenomenal speeds of 250 miles an hour. Our railroad technology is, this, is essentially the same as 1860. You get on, it's a two-rail thing. Amtrak is what it's called. You could really build a, a tremendous monorail system. Why do I have to spend five hours driving from Washington to New York, five and a half hours, or three and a half on Amtrak, when I could get there probably an hour and a half on a magnetic rail system? Um, and, and also irrational transportation systems within cities, too. Many empires begin to decay, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, they begin to decay when they're at the height of their military power. In fact, they, get so, they use up so much of their precious resources, their intelligence, their efforts, their human labor in military force that this begins to weaken them. The center begins to bleed while the periphery is fed so that the patricians can pursue their far-off plunder. Um, and this is where we are at right now. Well, what do you want? Do you want class warfare? No, class warfare is what we've been having all along. That's what they've been doing to us. Every time we want to fight back and say progressive income tax, oh, the Democrats are talking class warfare. Every time we want to do something back, oh, class warfare. But that's what, it's, that's what they're doing to us all the time. And yeah, it's already class warfare. And what we ought to do is stop being victims and mobilize and fight back and not take this stuff. Um, And Bush talked in the State of the Union message. He said, well, there's a resentment and hatred of the rich. It reminds me of H.L. Mencken's view about the Puritan, that the Puritan is someone who's unhappy because he suspects that other people are enjoying themselves. He's admitting that the rich enjoy themselves. Barbara Bush admitted that in 84. She said, yes, we are wealthy and we're not ashamed of it. We enjoy our wealth. I mean, I loved, I loved it. I thought, that's beautiful because you always hear how miserable the rich are and how they suffer and the burdens of their wealth and all that. They do very well. They are saved, for instance, from a lot of the adversities that come with not having money. Um, 
But it was a stupid, a, a stupid analogy. We're not, it's not that people resent the rich. And first of all, we're not talking about particularly rich individuals as such. We're talking about these big financial conglomerations that use the money for the expropriation of private wealth, for private wealth, expropriating the public wealth for private wealth. It's not that we want to trade places with the rich. It's that we want to get the rich off our backs. When I see a Rolls Royce go by, it's not that I, I never in my life wanted a Rolls Royce. I don't particularly, in fact, I drove in one once. Belonged to the niece of Bernard Baruch. It's a remarkable car, but what the hell he wanted for? Um, I just don't like it when you see a Rolls Royce go by and then there's the doorway with people sleeping in it. There's something wrong with the society that as impoverishment increases, in, my, in the town I live in, Washington, D.C., I can walk down Connecticut Avenue, walk around Pennsylvania Avenue, walk right in front of the White House in Lafayette Park, and there are people sleeping on benches. There's something wrong with the society where you see more and more Rolls Royces and limousines and stretch limousines and Mercedes and more and more private airplanes and all this sort of thing, and more and more people out there begging in the streets. I walk down, I walk down Connecticut Avenue to downtown and I must be accosted at least 10 times. It cost me $2 to take a walk anytime I do. Handing a quarter here, here's something here. You don't have that here because nobody walks, but, but, uh, <laughs> but, it, but it's real there. So let me finish here by just saying that it's not only class warfare. We got another name for it. We, got, we borrowed that name from the ancient Greeks when popular forces mobilize against the powers of plutocracy, and that's called democracy. See, ultimately, a democracy, a real democracy, has to be measured by not by its ability to have elections. We got elections from dog catcher on up, elections for everything. Got more elections than you could ever hope to deal with. Um, but ultimately, the worth of a system must be measured by a truly substantive democratic standard. Does it serve the public investor or the private plunderer? Does it serve the needs of the many or the greed of the few? We need drastic reforms, revolutionary reformist measures for a more democratic society, one that is economically productive, ecologically safe, and socially just. And that's what democracy is all about. Thank you. Yeah. 